2020 will be a year that will be remembered for a championship that nobody wanted to win. First there was Fabio, then there was Davi, and then there was Juan Mir. We've seen Jack Miller, we've seen Maverick Vinales throw their hat into the ring, we've seen Nakagami and Marquez give Honda some hope, we've seen KTM have wins and pole positions, Morbidelli stunned at different times, Yamaha has had stunning inconsistencies at other times. 2020 is going to be remembered as one of the weirdest years imaginable, but Suzuki and Juan Mir really look like they've put themselves into position to be the last man standing. Speaking of the last man standing, got Neil Morrison and David Emmett on the podcast this week, and Boys, you both look fairly worn out after the start of a triple header. So imagine what it's going to be like after another two races. Yeah, but this is this is the. It, I, I do you know what? I can't even remember whether this is the third or the fourth of the triple headers. It's that. Um, uh, I don't know. I can barely remember what uh, what my name is. Senality is a great thing for David Emmett. Neil, what about for you? How excited are you for another race weekend in Valencia next week? I'm excited. You know. I don't want to sound like I, I don't like this job. But I love this job. It's a great job. But uh, I think after a race weekend in a in a season as exhaustive as this one, you maybe need a f- maybe two or three days recovery. Then you you're ready to go again. So right now, I'm excited, but I'm not like really excited. Yeah, I don't think uh, I think by sort of mid December, I'm going to be really really excited about this uh, um, about this season because i'll have sort of regained enough energy levels to actually look back and think oh my god what an amazing season i tell you what the transcript of this show is going to show that neil was very excited his voice on the other hand didn't quite portray that (laughs) excitement welcome to the post european grand prix paddock pass podcast so boys we've had nine different winners through the course of this season so far we've had five new winners in the premier class this year we've had a season that Probably the most common word for this season has been asterisks. We've had asterisks applied for left, right and centre through the course of this year. We had it where COVID made the season a write-off. Mark Mark has been written off, devalued the whole championship. Juan Mir not winning a race was going to devalue the championship as well. We had lots of different cases where there was something that was going to make this the season to remember. And then coming into Valencia, we had probably one of the biggest stories of many years where Yamaha had their illegal valves and internal oversight on their part. But suddenly, because the riders weren't going to be punished, there was another reason for an asterisk to be attached to the championship standings. But suddenly this weekend, we had it where Juan Mir stepped forward. He's a Grand Prix winner now. He's on the verge of winning the championship. And David, Valencia should have been the toughest weekend of the season for everyone. We had sessions where the weather was different from one session to the next all the way through the season, through the weekend. But it was Suzuki and Mir and Alex Rins as well, that really stepped up to the fore. Yeah, I mean, Suzuki were just fantastic all weekend. They were um, uh, quick during practice. They were just quick straight out of the box. They both qualified on the front row uh, or on the front two rows. We saw um, uh, Alex Rins on the front row and uh, Joan Mir on the second row. Uh, they got a decent start and they just you know came through, even though there was never really any dry track time at all um there was a little bit of dry track time in fb2 there was some dry track time in uh, in the morning warm up but when the temperature was different so everyone was taking a guess going into the race um but i think what this shows is that the suzuki is the most well-rounded bike it is you know um it's it doesn't do lo- one thing amazingly uh, apart from maybe 
turn. It has it, it can hold a very, very tight line really, really well, but it doesn't do anything weekly. And so it's always, um, you know, it, you could always get it in, uh, get a ballpark set up with this bike. And that is where uh, that's its strength. And they really, really, that really paid off this weekend where they were ready to go for a ride from the start. Riders were ready to go right from the start and they just, you know, took it and ran with it. Yeah, Neil, David mentioned it there about the Suzuki being the most balanced bike on the grid, but they've got two young, hungry, intelligent riders as well. And this was a weekend where we probably saw that really come to the fore because they were able to get their bike into the right operating window earlier than everyone else. And that was one of the key things for this weekend. Yeah, that was absolutely critical. Um, as David mentioned, I think they had warm up on Sunday morning basically to get things right. Um, and yes, the race was quite a bit slower than uh, the 19 Ardin, but that's to be expected. Uh, but if you look at Mira's pace through the race, it was remarkable how he was able to achieve that sort of consistency as well as the speed uh, of being pretty much at the front. Um, it was uh, yeah, a true sign of, uh, of a champion, I think. Um, and it was just great to see him Okay, yes, we had the the first part of the Styrian Grand Prix, which was then red, red flagged, which has kind of been cast aside um, from history. But it was great to see Mir just assert himself on a race and lead and sort of dictate the pace. And yes, Alex Rins made a mistake, uh, which allowed Mir to come through and lead. Um, but straight after that mistake, I think Mir set his personal best lap. Then he said the race was fastest lap after that. And um, it was, uh, yeah, even without that mistake, I think Rin, uh, Mir was in the in the mood to take on his teammate and get that monkey off his back. And David, we, we look at Suzuki and, and you think back to when they came back into the class with they had Vinales and Alicia Spagro on the bike. But if you think back to when they first came into the class, it was as a wild card in Valencia. It was Randy Dipuni on the bike and they looked lost in those initial stages, but quickly they found their way and they've constantly been able to evolve that bike all the way through from 2015 onwards. And if you think to the only real time where we've seen them stumble, was 2017 when they went down the wrong direction with the engine. But when you look at the GSX or, or, or like it's been such a complete package for so long, but this year, because we've had all the changes, they seem to really have been able to get more from it than anyone else. It seems to really just work everywhere. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they've they've certainly benefited from the rear tire, from having the grip of this new rear Michelin. Um, uh, the it, also, it hasn't really overpowered the front, which is what appears to have happened with some of the other bikes. Um, uh, but it's been—I mean, it's always been a really well, sort of solid, well-rounded package. Um, and what you would see would be there'd be one point which would be a little bit weaker, one point which would be a little bit stronger, varying from year to year. But this year, everything really seems to have uh, have come together. And I think, I mean, you you can't um, underestimate just how much of this work is also down to the uh, test team and the people behind it. Uh, Sylvain Guintoli is a, 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 a test rider. Um, uh, Tom O'Kane, I know, has worked really a lot on uh, the you know simulating stuff on simulation software and and working on that. And I think you've spoken to him. Uh, a little bit about that as well, haven't you, Steve? You know, you know Tom O'Kane reasonably well. Yeah, I remember whenever he was doing his PhD, it was on basically being able to build a, a simulator for a bike. Obviously, it's a lot easier to build a car simulator because everything can be a lot more static. Weight can be static. 
contact point with your tires and everything like that. It's a lot easier to model all those things because there's long standing models for it. But with bikes, it just it's a very dynamic field. And Tom's pretty much at the cutting edge of that. And that's been one of the key things for Suzuki because they've been able to see what would work with different settings at different tracks and different temperature ranges and all those kind of things. And that's been one of the keys for them to really be able to get the most from the bike. Because, Neil, if you look at this season, we've had so many races where track temperature has been wildly different to anything that we've experienced at different tracks before. Suddenly, it's been about being able to turn up at a racetrack and just adapt to the new conditions. And that's been the big strength of Suzuki all the way through. And, and all that simulating, all that model work, all the test work, has to have played a big role in that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and Sylvain Gantoli, ex-World Superbike champion, obviously that's a guy that can uh, that can take a package to to the limits when he needs to. Um, and, you know, you mentioned it earlier, Steve, I mean, Mir and Rins, they're two young, hungry riders, um, still with a lot to prove in MotoGP. Um, they're level-headed, they're calm, and they think about things. And yeah, they're, they're two of the finest riders on the grid at the moment. And um, I mean, it's showing basically in, uh, in how the championship's playing out. David, just um, one question for you as well, actually, just on a similar kind of topic. When we spoke to Scott Redding on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, he was talking about in a sprint season, it becomes even more important to know the package that's underneath you. You can't turn up at a race and suddenly reinvent the wheel. You can't bring tons of development through the course of a season because it's being condensed so much. MotoGP has been like that as well. Probably with the triple headers, it's been even more exaggerated than what we had in superbikes. But to be able to have that perfect package week to week, we don't see that. But we've seen Suzuki... And in fairness, quite a lot through the course of this season, we've seen Yamaha have a lot of race victories, lots of podiums, but we saw Suzuki really able to get maybe not the absolute maximum out of their bike, but always to put it into a good working window for pretty much every track. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you, because well, we'll talk about Yamaha in a little while, but you know, the whole thing of this weekend being a complete disaster for Yamaha. But Yamaha have won half of the races held so far. So, you know, it's clear that the bike is there. Uh, it, the, the bike works and the bike is there. But um, one thing that Fabio Quartararo said was, you know, we've been up and down so much. And I think perhaps the difference between Suzuki's fate and Yamaha is that Suzuki have been, um, they haven't changed their bike very much. It's all been sort of small developments, small updates uh, from last year, just more sort of tweaks to make the bike better. Whereas Yamaha actually have a different chassis and a different engine. Um, they talk about a, a different engine concept. Now it's still an inline four and you know, the, the, there's not that much difference, but they've clearly changed the internals in such a way that the engine carries character is different. Uh, and in a, in a season like this, where there are so many unknowns, uh, where you're, you know, you're going to Jerez in, in the middle of summer when it's really, really hot, uh, you are going to Le Mans in October rather than May. Um, you're going to Aragon two weeks later than normal when the, when the weather is really, really strange. I think all of these things taken together mean that it's much more difficult to actually, uh, to use, I mean, the data you have, you don't really, you don't really, it's much more difficult to use, much more difficult to adapt to. Um, and because the Suzuki is so balanced, um, it's much easier to get it sort of, like I said, get it in the ballpark um, and up to speed quickly. And um, it's never terrible. 
uh, and that's perhaps the biggest difference. It's never it, there hasn't been a race where the Suzuki has been absolutely terrible because even if you look at, uh, for example, uh, Lamar, where uh, Juan Mir had a bad race, uh, Alex Rins was you know battling for the podium until he crashed out. Uh, so that so the bike was clearly competitive. It, it really has been good everywhere, whereas I think just about every other bike has had you know fantastic weekends and terrible weekends. Yeah, Neil, the championship does reflect that as well. It's a 37-point lead that Mir has now. So last weekend, he took just a massive step towards winning the championship. It's now very difficult to see a situation arising where he doesn't win the championship. But this has been a season where so much is hinged on tiny details. And 37 points, 50 points up for grabs, you you find it very difficult to see how Mir can be beaten for the championship. But is there any eventuality really that you can foresee where that could happen? Uh, yeah, it's really tough to say. Um, I think unless the weather plays like a, a crazy, ludicrous role, um, then the title is pretty much Mir's. I mean, he just needs, what, one third place this weekend? No matter where, you know, that even if Alex Rins wins, this race and the next one if Mir gets one third place in the remaining two he's champion um, he's not the strongest wet weather rider um, that's probably an obvious weakness but then even last weekend um, in the European GP we had plenty of wet sessions and Mir actually got the hang of it quite well um, and I think that's one of the reasons why it was such an impressive weekend for him because obviously the race played out the way it did that was really impressive but there were several circumstances where he could have possibly lost a bit of focus, lost his edge, the weather on Friday and Saturday. Like we do know that Mir isn't the fastest wet weather rider yet. He handled the conditions pretty well. Qualified, I think it was the second best qualifying of the season. Um, and the whole thing with Yamaha, which we will come on to, um, he just didn't get involved in it. He didn't let that really affect him. And he was just the total picture of cool all weekend long. Um, totally unflappable. And Considering that, I really can't see him cracking under any kind of pressure that's going to come with uh, the next two race weekends we have. Totally unflappable. I tell you what, it's only a segue to David Ammon on that case. <laughs> I'm uh, the most flappable person imaginable. Imaginable. I think, um, in, in a way, this reminds me a lot of um, Jonathan Ray after Manicor, where he almost had it in the bag. Um, and there was only really one thing which could stop him from actually wrapping this whole thing up, and that was COVID. That was, you know, if he caught the coronavirus, had a positive test and couldn't get into the next race, um, then that would have completely ruined his championship. And to me, the only way that uh, Juan Mir loses the championship is if he tests positive and, you know, and, uh, and can't compete. That would be a complete disaster. I presume he's, you know, basically sat inside a uh, an airproof, uh, um, an airtight plastic tent until he gets uh, on the bike for, for FP1. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's really, that's, that's the only, only thing that could stop him. Yeah, Neil, just to ask you this question, obviously, because you're in the paddock, what are the actual protocols for everyone within the paddock? Uh, well, the protocols are that you get tested um, basically the week that you have the race. Um, you obviously have to socially distance wherever you are seated, um, be it the media center or the commentary booth or wherever it is. Um, and 
what else do we have to do? Um, it's all become so natural in the last couple of weeks that um, I'm trying to remember. Yeah, we obviously have to remain within our accommodation uh, between the races and during the weekend. Um, basically, just limit our contact to the outside world completely and um, remain within our in inverted commas bubble um, so I have you know a couple of people that I see on a regular basis at the circuit I can't really uh, stray beyond them Okay so David obviously with all these restrictions in place we've seen all the riders like you said have to really just put themselves away from everything else we've got the season now coming to a close it's probably a lot easier to do it now you've got a championship to focus on you've got only you know two weeks to get through until the end of the season but uh for the riders, that's tough as well. For the teams, it's tough. For everyone within the paddock, it's tough because suddenly it becomes very claustrophobic for everyone out there. Yeah, I mean, I I can imagine. Uh, well, I have to imagine because I haven't actually sort of been in that situation, but it must be... And I think also that the danger is because the end is near, it's a bit like when you're driving home driving a long way home and you're nearly home and you're sort of your mind starts to wander because you're sort of starting to relax. So I sort of wonder if people are letting their guard down a, a little bit or likely to let their guard down a little bit. Um, but yeah, it's it's got to be, certainly for me, you know, the, the season is starting to really, you're starting to notice the fatigue of all of these triple headers and all of the team members, it must be the same. And all of, for example, all the Japanese engineers, all of these people who have been here, over here since July, haven't been home in all that time. Um, it must be getting very close to feeling like, all right, we're almost there. And um, this that that I think is when sort of like the fatigue is really going to start to 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 show through. And the I think one of the reasons that I think that Juan Mir has got this has got it in the bag is because he has been so good at maintaining his focus, at just concentrating on the job at hand, not doing anything stupid just doing what he needs to do every week week in week out not getting excited not going not going crazy not getting upset uh just you know grinding out uh, grinding it out week in week out and and doing what's uh, what, what's needed yeah getting the job done and that's been the important thing for Suzuki Unfortunately for Yamaha, though, they're, they're on the other side of that coin because this was probably, Neil, the worst weekend imaginable for Yamaha. The worst weekend I can remember since I started working in the paddock for Yamaha as well. Obviously, struggled on the track. They had the COVID cases off the track on Vinales' side of the pit box. They had the penalties issued for the illegal valves. I don't think anything else could have really been thrown at Yamaha this week. Yeah, it's hard to think of anything more happening to them. I think the one bright spot was uh, Garrett Gerloff's performance on Friday when he was stepping in for Valentino Rossi. But other than that, it was uh, it was pretty wretched from start to finish. Um, yeah, I mean, where to start? Like the, uh, as you said, Steve, like the engine ruling um, was, um, I guess you could say the riders got off um, quite lightly in that. Um, but the Yamaha lost, what, 50, 50 points in the Constructors' Championship. Um, their two teams lost sizable points in the Teams' Championship. Um, and they have basically got a lot of egg on their face. And we know how seriously um, the idea of honor is to, to Japanese companies like Yamaha. I mean, it's uh, that's a really, really big deal. And then, I mean, I think 
with a bit of hindsight, it was always going to end like this. I mean, we were always going to see some form of reliability issue with um, with the likes of Vinales or Franco Morbidelli, because I think both of those guys, they had three of their five engines for the season um, withdrawn after the first round. So that's essentially basically the entire season on two engines. So, I mean, it was it was always going to happen, I think, for, for Vinales. Um, his pit lane start was bad, and then, you know, Quartararo never, never looked like he was in the game. Um, the fact that he was talking about risking it all on Saturday, I thought this is really only going to have one outcome. And sure enough, yeah, crashed, and uh, his championship hopes went with it. Well, I suppose at least the one positive thing, David, for this weekend was that Vinales didn't lose any any places on the first lap for a change. So at least there was one positive for Yamaha. But I think that probably the biggest negative for them was just the PR battle as well, because an internal oversight was uh, what was deemed the reason for the uh, illegal valves. Basically, what happens is you have to homologate your engines, and that means that uh, you have to provide a sample engine uh, with all of the internal parts you are not allowed to change through the season. Now, Yamaha were having problems with a supplier of valves, so they switched to another supplier of valves um, and ordered those valves, but those valves weren't quite identical. In, I mean, you know, they were the same size and size and weight, size, shape, and weight, uh, but the material consistency was was not quite the same, which is why they weren't pop at, uh, at uh, Jerez. They should have found out whether that was going to be allowed they didn't uh, find out whether that was going to be allowed they had that uh, they should have asked the msma if they were allowed to change that they didn't ask that then they did finally at austria and then once um, the other factory started asking for more details then they withdrew their request again which is what actually ended up prompting this whole investigation and how they found out um but the, the whole thing has been a bit of a farce and they ended up you know, really punishing themselves by ending up with no, by being forced to retire um, two engines uh, after the first race with 13 races still left. So, yeah, and we are, we're seeing it with Maverick Vinales, uh, Franco Morbidelli um, is running out of engines um, and they've had to tune, detune the engines a little bit, you know, take some of the top revs off to to make them last. Um, and and balance the just to balance their engines out. So it's been it's just been a really tough season for them all, and it just went completely you know to hell this weekend. I suppose that it's a good thing then that there's an engine. Oh wait, no, there's an engine freeze next year, Dave. That's not going to help them either. Uh, no, no, this is it. In fact, this is one thing I've got to try and dig out exactly what they've got to do and whether they're going to be allowed to change their valves for next weekend or which valves they're going to be using and whether it's the um, uh, for, for next year rather whether it's going to be from the new supplier or the old supplier and whether they've got enough of these valves so the whole thing is a bit of a you know a real mess and they could find themselves in trouble even at the beginning of next season Neil we heard from David Brivio over the course of the weekend as well saying that you know because the riders didn't get a penalty that this would leave an asterisk if a Yamaha rider were to win the championship this year. So obviously it was something that was a big talking point all the way through until the end of the weekend, really, whenever we had the race. But uh, this was a race where, you know, Fabio talked on Saturday about the bike doesn't feel like it's his own bike all the way through the season. Even whenever he was winning races, he didn't feel comfortable with the bike. 
Rossi was talking about how Yamaha had been too aggressive with the engine development, trying to find more horsepower. It sacrificed the the handling that's always been the calling card for Yamaha. And it just seems that this year's everything's just come to a head for them. The new tyre as well, all these different changes. And they just haven't quite managed to evolve as well as they would have wanted to evolve, even though they've been able to win half the races this year. They've been able to have podiums all the way through as well. Yeah, I mean, you, you have to bear in mind what Dave said a, a few minutes ago. They've won six races this year. Three of the riders were fighting for the championship up until the final triple header. Um, you know, all four have been all four have been on the uh, on the podium. All four you know, have been on the podium. They've yeah. locked out the front row on numerous occasions. You know, there's been several weekends where Yamaha has been a class above the rest of the, the manufacturers. Um, it's just that in the end, a few details. Um, I think Lynn Jarvis basically said that it was a, he said it was a mistake in the planning from Yamaha Japan, which led to the, the, the valve issue and basically them seeking out valves from two different suppliers and not making the adequate checks to make sure that they were the same composition or the same uh, material um, that was being used. And it's just at this level, you tend to get found out whenever all the details aren't completely in line. And a few small details were missing from Yamaha this year, and it's it's come back to really, really bite them. Um, but I still think, um, you know, generally it's it's still a relatively good bike. It's just a bit puzzling as to why the, the 2020 machine seems to be, um, you know, at first it seemed to be a big step forward and a big improvement. Um, but with a, a kind of a season's worth of, of perspective, you can now say that probably the 19 bike is, was a better machine because um, Fabio Quartararo has said it from day one that he was faster on the 20 bike but never quite as comfortable as he was last year. And um, yeah, that's really, that's, a, that's eventually told because yeah, when Fabio's been good, he's been tremendous, but there's been so, so many off days. Neil, you mentioned it there as well. Obviously, that uh, Yamaha have had this ability at different rounds to be very competitive. MotoGP now is closer than anything we've ever seen. Pretty much anything we've ever seen from any major championship as well. And it is a case of if you're just that like half a percent off, you're nowhere. And Yamaha probably fallen a bit victim to that as well. Because obviously, whenever everything is pushed to such a high degree, if you're just that little bit off, it magnifies to a much greater degree than it would have, say, 10 years ago in MotoGP. Yeah, exactly. That's it. We're dealing with such fine margins uh, this season um, with, uh, you know, how close the top 10 is together, how close the top 15 is together. Um, and the fact that now, well, from what we've seen this year, there are five pretty competitive machines on the grid. Um, and, yeah, a bad day constitute, you know, basically a bad day now is 11th place, whereas... You know, eight, nine years ago, a bad day was third place. I think, um, I wonder how much of this is also down to testing. Um, because what we do know about Yamaha is they haven't been able to do much testing. Uh, obviously, they uh, signed Jorge Lorenzo to be a test rider, and he did a little bit of testing in Sepang, and that was about it. And he you know, basically wasn't used for the entire season. Uh, because of logistical issues, they couldn't get um, Japanese engineers over to actually do the testing in Europe, and so they stayed in Japan and did all their testing. So I, I wonder if that played a role. Also, 
also, there weren't any post-race tests either. It was just, you know, r race weekend after race weekend. So there was no time for Quattararo, for uh, Rossi, for Vinales to actually work on the bike uh, sort of quietly and calmly, um, apart from the apart from the Misano test, of course. Um, they didn't really have make, much time to actually work on the bike. Um, so I, I think that really, really hurt them. Because if you compare them to, say, for example, KTM, who did get a lot of testing done, um, uh, KTM has been much, much better. Uh, uh, Suzuki and Honda have also had a, a, a certain amount of testing. You certainly see it with with Honda, that Stefan Bradl has been not only testing, but also basically testing in uh, during each weekend. Um, and you see that they've they've made real progress through the, through the weekends or through the season. So... I wonder if this is also sort of a bit of a false picture that we're getting of Yamaha because they've had everything go against them this season. Yeah, I think it's interesting, Dave, that you mentioned the work that KTM especially have done with their test program because if we think back to the early season races, they had a big advantage in Brno because Danny Pedrosa tested there. They knew the exact tyre that they wanted to use for that race weekend go in advance that proved to be a massive advantage for them we saw something similar this weekend as well because they were able to have Danny test there last week it meant that they knew the tyres that they could use they were able to start building things up which on a weekend was so much shortened by the bad weather definitely played a big role for them as well and definitely helped them quite a lot um, I'm going to try and keep things moving along though guys because we've got a lot to talk about still for the rest of the show but Neil just one quick hit from you as well just before we sign off on Yamaha what was your thoughts on Garrett Gerloff and his performance this week seriously seriously impressive um, I thought that it was it was a bit of a nightmare situation for him at first because um, on Thursday I think Vinales was asked about it in the press conference and he said it's the worst possible day for Garrett to jump on a MotoGP machine for the first time because we're going to have I think uh, what wet conditions in the morning and then uh, half and half conditions in the afternoon not ideal by any stretch of the imagination to jump on Midland tires for the first time, use carbon brakes for the first time, MotoGP machine for the first time. But um, I mean, Garrett was really impressive. Um, I think in long parts of both sessions, he was inside the top 15 comfortably. Um, and to you know, end the day, um, I think he was, what, 1.5 seconds off for thereabouts um, of the quickest time. Was really good going. I'm, I don't even think, had Garrett even been to Valencia before? Um, I don't think he had. So, yeah, it was um, really impressive performance. Also, just the, the impact and the impression that he left. You saw Alex Briggs, uh, one of Ross's mechanics, um, sending him a message on Twitter stating what a pleasure it was working with him. And um, Lynn Jarvis was interviewed, I think, on, on Saturday by Simon Crayford and Pitlin. And Lynn was saying, yeah, I uh, wouldn't be surprised to see this guy here full-time in a few years. And knowing how eager Dorna is to bring an American into the MotoGP class, I mean, yeah, Garrett has left a, a perfect business card um, after just one day of running. Yeah, certainly for Garloff, he'd never ridden in Valencia. I think he was at the track a couple of years ago just to try and get his name out. He certainly got his name out this week. But uh, Dave, we've also got some news about another rider for next year. And it wasn't good news. It was Andrea Iannone's uh, Court of Arbitration for Sport. The announcement was made today that he'll be banned for four years from MotoGP action. Yeah, I mean, it was sort of inevitable really especially once the wider got involved the doping code is very very clear uh, and very very harsh it's simply that um, you are responsible for everything which goes into your body 
And if uh, a banned substance finds its way into your body, you have to have a really, a very, very good explanation for how it got there. Uh, in his defense, he didn't, he couldn't show how um, it could have got in there. He couldn't show what kind of contaminated meat um, he might have eaten um, in Sepang because he claimed that uh, this uh, substance, drostanolone, uh, got into his uh, bloodstream because he ate some contaminated meat, but he couldn't say what meat might have been contaminated. He couldn't explain uh, or he couldn't show any real evidence of widespread use of drostanolone in, in meat production um for the Malaysian market uh so yeah he really didn't have a leg to stand on and it was a risky strategy as well because he had an 18 month ban from the um uh, from the FIM uh which would have run out um uh what a little bit earlier i think um oh no it would have run out in in uh, uh no middle of next year that's right um and uh which would have meant you know, he could have been racing next year uh, he appealed against that um, but by taking it to the CAS, he brought it to the attention of WADA. Uh, WADA decided, no, 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 this is a this is a violation, and we want the full uh, penalty as defined in the WADA code uh, applied. And because he couldn't defend himself, Ian only lost, and now he is banned until December uh, 2023, which is basically means the end of his career. Yeah, and uh, certainly for WADA, any time that they get involved, it does tend to mean that you're going to come down pretty heavily on the penalties. We've seen lots of cases over the last couple of years where athletes have missed tests, missed their doping controls, and they've been landed with two-year penalties. So for someone like Ian One that failed a test to come away with a two-year penalty would have been a big surprise, especially considering I think the Court of Arbitration for Sport or at least the IAAF banned Christian Coleman only a couple of weeks ago for failing to to appear for tests or failing for his whereabouts tests or anything like that. It was a two-year ban for him. He's the top 100-meter runner in the world right now. So it shows that they were always going to be pretty strict on Ian One unless he could prove his innocence. And it's always a case in these Court of Arbitration for Sport appeals that you have to prove your innocence rather than they have to prove your guilt. And it's a lot easier to prove guilt in these kind of cases than it is to prove innocence. But Neil, with Ian One likely on, on one side of retirement now at this stage, there was news today on the rider market that Andrea De Vizioso is going to take a sabbatical next year, which obviously puts him very close to basically confirming his own retirement from MotoGP as well. He'll come back as a 36-year-old. Will someone want to give him a ride after a year off? But it was big news on the rider market front as well. Yeah, huge news, really. Um, because, well, since De Vizioso, um, announced the split from Ducati in August. Um, I think every manufacturer pretty much in the, uh, the MotoGP paddock bar Ducati um, had approached him with uh, with regards to him possibly joining that factory's test team. Um, Aprilia obviously, um, I think, were interested in bringing them to replace Iannone if the outcome of today's um, uh, cast appeal basically was the way it was. Um, but... Yeah, it, it seems that Davizioso has turned kind of all the offers down that he had and um, has decided to, to take a year off. And it, it seems that um, that basically the last couple of years, the last two years in particular, have just been have been tough, tough seasons for him. Um, this year has been a, an unmitigated disaster. Um, we know after Mark injuring himself at Jerez that Davizioso really pinned his hopes on winning the championship this year because it was... Uh, you know, with Mark not here, a bit of an open goal for him. Um, but it's just never worked out. And 
one weekend aside, Davizioso has never had the speed. And I mean, we've talked about the uh, the, the Red Bull documentary he did um, last year, um, but the amount of pressure that he puts under himself, the amount of pressure that the team puts on him, uh, it's that's a heavy work, that's a heavy load to be walking around with. Um, and you rather fancy that, um, you know, with without the the absolute perfect project, you know, it's not like he's financially wanting. He can uh, he can walk away and do what he wants for a year. And I, I bumped into his manager um, on Friday, Simone Battistella, and he was saying that you know that there is that intention to come back in 2022. Um, whether he will find that with um, so much placed on youth these days uh, is another matter. But um, the intention's certainly there at this moment. But that's before he starts motocrossing uh, in quite a competitive way, which is how I, I imagine he will spend his 2021. And once he gets the bug for that, then who knows whether he'll want to return to MotoGP. Yeah, I, I think one of the problems which uh, David Chiosa had was that he made it very clear that um, if he took a role as a test rider, it would be because he wanted to come back racing in 2022. Um that's not really what factories want from a test rider. You know, what factories want from a test rider is they want you to test, uh, to be ready to go if you have to substitute for someone. Uh, but they really want a, like a, a long-term program. And it would have been, especially someone like David Chester with so much uh, technical knowledge, so much technical know-how, um, they would be worried about letting him come in as a test rider. He would learn an awful lot about their bikes and then he would go on to another factory and maybe take all that knowledge with him. So it was, uh, I think it was always going to be quite a difficult uh, situation. And then there was, like Neil said, the, uh, the, the motocross uh, situation. Whenever uh, our friend Adam Wheeler turns up to a MotoGP race, then Dovi is onto him like a, uh, like a limpet because he wants to know everything that's going on in the MXGP paddock. Um, he's absolutely, I always think, you know, I, I think MotoGP was about, was a, uh, uh, was a backup career choice for Andrea Dovicio. So that's very much the impression you get that he really wanted to be a motocrosser. Um, he wanted to race that. And again, that's, that's a decision which as a factory, you don't want to lose valuable test time just because your test rider has been racing motocross and managed to break his, uh, you know, break his ankle or break his collarbone or fall off and hurt himself in another way. Yeah, and David, there's obviously lots of other news related to test riders for next year. And uh, there's rumours that, obviously, Jorge Lorenzo and Aprilia, that looks like it could well happen. There's rumours that uh, Crutchlow could be a Yamaha test rider. There's lots of gossip about who's going to fill these roles. And the big reason for that is there's big money in it, for one thing, but there's also massive importance in it. In a normal year... And this year, KTM have been able to show the advantages of having those kind of test programs. But in a normal year, if you could have someone of that ilk, it could be a massive benefit for you. Yeah, I mean, it's really... Uh, I think you have to go back and look at uh, Michele Pero and the difference that Michele Pero made uh, because he was fast. He was fast enough to actually make a difference um, uh, for Ducati. He helped Ducati go forward a long way. And he has put pressure on other factories to actually get people, you know, similarly uh, riders who are just as fast. So Stefan Bradl at Honda, Jorge Lorenzo at Yamaha, even though he didn't get used to so much, Danny Pedrosa at, at KTM. And you really see what a difference Danny Pedrosa has made at KTM um, because he's able to 
you know, filter, sort, pre-select all of the right bits and pieces to give to the factory uh, riders uh, so that they, you know, just, just to whittle down the choices. And that's been one of the reasons that they've been, been able to make such big, uh, big, big uh, progress. Um, the, also, the, the limited amount of testing for the contracted riders themselves means that it's much more important that the test riders are fast enough to actually provide useful feedback. So, yeah, uh, it's... I mean, whenever you introduce cost-cutting measures like reducing um, the amount of test days and all that sort of thing, what happens is that people just find other ways to spend the money. Because at the moment, being a MotoGP test rider, you know, a top-level MotoGP test rider probably pays more than racing in World Superbikes. Yeah, it definitely looks that way because, Neil, one of the big rumors about Lorenzo is that he was picking up a million quid this year as Yamaha's test rider. So quarter of a million a day. It's, it's probably actually similar to what you charge magazines, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And this podcast, uh, come to think of it. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, think of that. What, two days at Sepang and then... For some uh, reason, those invoices keep bouncing back though, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I need to speak to my accountant. Um, yeah, but, but basically, yeah, a million, a million euros for what... Uh, a, a test of Sepang and then a track day, essentially, at Portimao. I mean, good going, Jorge. I mean, kudos to yourself. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's it. That's a good, that's a good role that he's found. Obviously, it hasn't worked out and, um, and Jorge will not be with Yamaha. But I mean, Cal Crutchlow taking that role is, uh, is a bit of a turn up for the books because we, we had long thought that Aprilia was, was the option, uh, possibly the most likely option if, um, if the Ian Oney verdict went as it did. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, in some ways it's a shame that Cal's going to be leaving the grid as a full-time rider. Um, but you have to imagine that the Yamaha, um, the Yamaha deal would basically include some form of wild cards because as it stands, there would be no British riders in the MotoGP grid next year. And we know that that is a, a crucial thing for Dorna, who obviously received quite a lot of money from, from BT Sports for the ad, um, for the broadcasting rice. Um, so, I mean, for Cal, if you have, what, four, a couple of wild cards a year um, and you're, you're testing quite a lot, the money's good. I mean, is it, you know, you're working for a, a good company, which you know from the past, uh, on a good bike, a bike that's capable of fighting for a championship. It's it's quite appealing in some respects. And David, just uh, obviously we, as Neil said there, we thought for a while that Cal was in play for the Aprilia race seat for next year, regardless of what was going to happen. Now for next year, that seat's suddenly up for grabs. It's a factory seat in MotoGP. Fair enough, it's been a bit of a poison chalice at different times for riders, but it's a factory seat that's available. And who are you thinking could be in play for that kind of ride? I honestly have no idea because, yeah, like like Neil said, we thought uh, that maybe Cal Crutchlow would go there. Uh, but then again, I think Aprilia seemed to have made the mistake of uh, waiting for Andrea Iannone because that uh, basically just irritated all of the riders who were in line for that seat. It made them all feel like second-class second citizens. Um, I mean, you can't have riders, uh, uh, you know, you can't tell your riders, no, 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 we're waiting for someone else who might be a doping cheat. Uh, it is not a good look. It is not a good way to motivate and, and uh, motivate people to come ride for you. So uh, I think uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw someone from Moto2 move up maybe. 
um, because that's pretty much all there is left. Um, it would either be that or someone coming across from uh, World Superbikes. But then again, the riders who, I mean, you know, Chas Davies, Eugene Laverty, they have ridden in, they have raced in MotoGP, but it's been a long time ago. Uh, and, uh, the, you know, the, the, the question is, are they still fast enough? Are they still motivated enough to do that? And what would be, what would be the benefit? Yeah, and I think uh, you mentioned it there, Dave, about some of the Moto2 riders that could be a possibility for it. Obviously, we had news this week that uh, Luke Marini is going to step up to the Premier class next year. Obviously, we already know that Jorge Martin is moving up and Nia Bastianini is moving up. Neil, when you look at Moto2, who do you see as a potential rider that could make that step up next year? Um, well, I was a bit like Dave earlier. Um, I think we were messaging uh, each other in the WhatsApp group that we have throwing some names around that could be a possibility and we were coming up quite short but then when you think about Moto2 and you think of the situation last year that Repsol Honda found themselves in after Jorge Lorenzo announced his retirement um, at the final race weekend I mean a lot of these Moto2 guys yes they might have deals for 2021 but pretty much most of those deals will have a get out clause if they are offered a MotoGP seat um, and if you look at the Moto2 World Championship, Bastianini and Marini are going up. San Lowe's is, um, is obviously second in that championship, but Lowe's is, what, 30 years old? Um, well, he had a horrible time at Aprilia, so that wouldn't really be an option. Um, but then you go a bit further down that list and what Marco Bezzecchi is, fourth fastest guy. And I saw um, our colleagues at Autosport have uh, said that he is top of the... Um, off the list um, and uh, I mean Bezzecchi would make sense he's Italian he's 21 years old he's in his second year in Moto2 and was well still is fighting for the championship has won two races this year he's smart he's intelligent he is good at languages he is adaptable um, and he's keen he's really really keen and I think in an ideal world if you're uh, Massimo Rivola or Romano Albessiano you would be drawing a big red asterisk next to Bez's name and thinking, okay, what do we have to offer to get him here? I like the fact, Neil, that in this year, you've decided that they wouldn't be circling a rider's name instead, putting <laughs> asterisks there just to make it like everything else in the course of this season. Dave, we've got some questions from listeners as well. We've got one question in from Jordan Moreland and uh, Jordan's asking, can Nakagami win this weekend? He's got a great base after finishing fourth in Valencia 1. Uh, that's not a bad shout because he really did look very, very good at... Um uh, Aragon, um, especially the, the Teruel round, Aragon 2, um, he was really quick. It was quite impressive um, uh, this weekend. He was uh, at, at the uh, Europe Grand Prix. Um, he was basically after losing out in the first part of the race, he was as fast as the leaders in the second half. So he had the pace and he said himself that his problem was that uh, he was saving his tyres too much in the early rounds. Uh, and then finding himself being as fast as them, or even faster at the end of the uh, at the end of the race. I think Nakagami actually set the fastest uh, lap almost at the end. Um, so yes, but he, he, Nakagami still has this one key skill to to, to figure out, which is um, to be able to push early but still keep enough tyre to last uh, at the end of the race. And he's at the moment, he's erring on the side of um, uh, not pushing hard enough early on. So, um, yeah, if he gets a good qualifying, it's going to be difficult also because we're going to have a completely dry weekend and a lot of riders are going to have enough time to 
work towards getting a decent setup. So um, it's going to be tricky. But yeah, I absolutely wouldn't rule it out. And if you'd have asked me, I don't know, six races ago, I would, I would have said no. So Mark H, he's asked us, uh, how much is Petrucci looking forward to the move to KTM now? And just as a sub-question for this as well, Neil, obviously we saw KTM on the podium with Paul, but we also saw Brad Binder a really impressive pace in the second half of the race. Yeah, yeah, we, uh, yeah, it was a good weekend from KTM. I would say Petrucci is counting down the minutes, maybe even the seconds till, till he gets off that Ducati at the end of this year. Um, basically, um, what happens with a lot of the riders when they come to do their debriefs over Zoom is they'll come up and join their press officer in the press room. And uh, for the last couple of weeks, I've had the pleasure of sitting maybe two rows behind the Ducati press officer and basically get to see the expression of both Davizioso and uh, Petrucci coming into the press room after their their day of action. And uh, I mean, if you think of um, Harry Enfield's Kevin, the teenager, I mean, he, he doesn't even come close to the body language that both of those guys have been showing. Um, so it's been, I mean, it's been a pretty horrible year for Petrucci. Um, and you, I don't think he's looked happy at any stage since this time last year when there were links of, um, of him being out of the factory squad. Um, for 2020. Um, so I think he knows that certain people within the factory don't value him and don't want him there. And KTM, as you said, Steve, they had a great race. They've had a really good season. They've taken massive, massive steps forward in 2020. And um, it's a it's a bike which can be ridden in a variety of different ways. I mean, Paul Espargaro's riding style is quite different to Miguel Oliveira's. And... Yeah, Sunday was another case in point that it's uh, it just finds solutions to to obvious problems, and it's helped massively by the fact that Pedroza is working in the background. Um, Paul, I thought was outstanding uh, to to basically run with Suzuki's all race, um, and I thought Brad Binder was also outstanding. Um, took maybe the first half of the race to to find his feet, but the first half of the race was him coming to terms with the track in the dry as a rookie. And he set the fastest lap of the race towards the end. So I would say this weekend coming, Valencia too. Watch out for Brad Binder. I mean, that's the guy that could be fighting for the podium. I think another thing about Petrucci is that he's going to the Tech 3 team. It's going to be a satellite team. There's a lot less pressure. It's it's a good atmosphere in that team as well. It's a it's like a friendly family atmosphere. Uh, Petrucci is the kind of guy who needs the right atmosphere around him. Um, he excelled in the Pramac team as well for exactly the same reason. He was relaxed. Uh, he could be free, and I think that's going to be very similar once he gets to Tech Three. So I think uh, I, I think Petrucci is is uh, it's going to be really interesting to see him in the Tech Three team. I think he's going to do well there. Dave, is a really important follow-on question from what Neil said. How excited are you to see that riders hate Zoom calls almost as much as you do? Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, riders hate talking to us anyway. So, you know, like we are basically wasting their time, time they could be spending with their engineers working on setup or uh, else training or else watching uh, watching video and figuring out what they did wrong at the last race and where the weaknesses of somewhere else is. So, yeah, every every second they spend speaking to us is um, uh, it, it is uh, is an infringement uh, on their uh, on their ability to go faster, they feel. So, yeah. Yeah. But uh, yes, it's. 
unsurprising that they don't find it fun. It, it's not really all as much fun as you might imagine. I'm very surprised that they don't find our questions illuminating enough to really bring them forward with their understanding of their bikes. Dave, we've got a question from Matt Weiss as well. And uh, what Matt's asking is, what's happened to Ducati? And uh, he's actually asking, are Ducati slipping into that midfield territory for a manufacturer now? Um, I mean, what's happened with Ducati is quite simple. Um, it's that they haven't got their heads around the the the, the, the rear Michelin tire. The the, the front tire, although the rear tire is overpowering the front, and they can't get it to work properly. And there is a solution for this, um, which would have been coming in 2021, but is now going to come in 2022, which is this new stronger construction um, uh, front, which uh, would have put them back on um, sort of back on track. Um, I am quite surprised that Ducati haven't figured this out. They should have figured it out much earlier to get, you know, find a way to actually do this, to actually to actually ride this. Um, their problem seems to be particularly braking in a straight line. Um, and they, yeah, basically they just haven't been able to sort of find a way to figure it out. Pekka Benyaya seems to figure it out sometimes at some circuits, um, but they haven't been able to find really like a general solution. And I think this has been, again, it's down to the lack of testing time. You are, if you don't have the time to test, if you don't have the facilities to test, um, then, then you're stuck this year because of the compressed season. And uh, Neil, we're going to finish off before we get to winners and losers with your usual recap on Moto2 and Moto3. And uh, obviously, we've, we're now into the final triple header. We're into a stage where those championships can be decided as well. So what was the big takeaways for you from those two classes this weekend? Um, I think it's basically just what you got from MotoGP and then turn it on its head. I mean, MotoGP was quite definitive. I think we know where the championship's going. And Moto2 and Moto3 did everything in its part to basically throw the championship off course or, or throw it off the course where you thought it might be heading. Uh, we saw a crash for Sam Lowe's. Uh, we saw a crash for uh, Celestino Vietti and uh, a subsequent black flag for Albert Reynas. Crashes for John McPhee and Jama Masia in Moto3. Um, so it was it was pretty wild, uh, pretty crazy. Um, yeah, Moto2, just to start off with, I guess. Um, it was a, a really... It, it basically, it looked as though Sam Lowe's had it had it in his in his grasp. You know, he was sitting second, um, and his championship challengers Bastianini and Marini were 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 really struggling to get uh, to his level. But um, yeah, his crash was was pretty costly, um, and Bastianini's fourth place takes him back to the summit. Marini actually um, rallied quite well to get sixth place, and suddenly he's back in the in the hunt. Bezeki won the race, and now he's within, I think, a race win of uh, of Lowe's as well. So it's it's all to play for there. And then Moto three, I mean, goodness me, it was just uh, it was just madness, wasn't it? Absolutely crazy. Uh, I mean, I would I'd like to ask both of you guys your opinion on what Albert Reynas did. Personally, I thought it was it was ludicrous his actions, and um, he was basically completely deserving of that black flag that came his way. Yeah, for me, I think he was probably deserving of another penalty as well because he puts himself into the middle of the fight and he says, oh, but I just wanted to show to people that I was fast, that I was that I had this pace. And you're just there like, everyone knows you're fast, Albert. You're leading the championship. Why are you putting yourself in a position where suddenly 
next week you could be under pressure because I think he should be given along that penalty or some sort of penalty for next week because it was ridiculous. He put himself into a situation that he shouldn't be in and it was for no reason at all other than just his ego. And it's one of those things that, you know, the team should the team should have been able to control him better maybe, but it's up to the rider once he's on the bike to be able to look at what's right and wrong and he had no reason to be in that fight when there's blue flags out on track there's a race going on and guess what you're not involved in it yeah i mean it was i mean a black flag he won't get another penalty because a black flag is a penalty enough you know basically you can't be penalized twi twice for the same offense and one black flag is enough but um um yeah he, he should have stayed out of it Certainly. It reminded me, I seem to recall a couple of years ago in Moto2 with Joan Zarco doing something very, very similar, um, uh, where he fell off, got back on, and then started getting involved with uh, battles that he had no business being involved in, just because he wanted to get, uh, to start to lap people again, start to come back or unlap himself. Um, Sure, if you are fast, if you crash and you are faster than everyone else and they have lapped you, then you should have a chance to redeem yourself by uh, passing them again. But you have to do it as safely as possible and without getting in their way. Um, and that was what he didn't do. So I think the black flag is justified, uh, but I don't think... Um, I, I don't think he deserves or I don't think he needs another penalty. I think the black flag was enough. Yeah, for me though, when you come back onto the track and you're a lap down, it's different to being three laps down or whatever Arenas was. Because for someone like Zarco in that instance, if he can unlap himself and we get a race restarted, suddenly he just starts at the back of the field. For Arenas, even if he unlaps himself and we get a restarted race, he's still one or two laps down. So he's still out of it. So that's where for me there was a little bit of a grey area. And uh, definitely one of those ones where I think if he was given a subsequent penalty, I wouldn't have been surprised by it. It's probably better that he doesn't. It's good for the championship or it's good for at least we'll know exactly what we're seeing next week in Valencia. But uh, just before we finish up, boys, I want to bring us to our usual closing segment, winners and losers. David, we've just heard from Neil there. I want to hear from you first about who was your big winner from the weekend. I mean, there's only really one... Um, that, well... I'll tell you what, I won't go for the obvious one. Then uh, someone else can, uh, can take the obvious one. I'll go for Suzuki um, uh, and David Abrivio because this is the culmination of David Abrivio's work. Um, David Abrivio was brought in to run this the run the Suzuki program right from the start. They had a really, really clear program of hiring young, talented riders and hoping to develop them together with the bike to become world champion, to start winning races and to, to, uh, to start winning championships. Um, Abrivio put together really good teams. They've got a really good test team. They've got really strong, cohesive units in teams. The atmosphere inside of Suzuki looks really, really good. Um, uh, the riders are really good. The, the, they've been really smart with their rider selection. Uh, and it looks like uh, Juan Mir is on his way to winning a, cha a championship. So to me, like David Abrivio is the winner, is the biggest winner of this weekend because he had a plan, and uh, to um, uh, quote, um, uh, the, the, what's the fellow's name from the A-team? Um, uh, the plan has come together. 
No, not Mr. T, the... Um, uh, the uh, <laughs> Hannibal. Hannibal was Hannibal, the man with the Hannibal, plan. that's the one. Mr. But when T I was the say man Hannibal, with I was the fear of... Hannibal Lecter, and it's definitely not Hannibal Lecter. Um, uh, but yeah, well, yes, basically a plan is... It, David Brivia had a plan, and the plan has come together, and uh, he's starting to reap the rewards. So I hope he's getting a big fat bonus from Suzuki for it. I'm pretty sure he is. Neil, who's your big winner? Uh, I'm going to look at Moto2 and say it's Marco Bezzecchi because he won the race. He won it in fine style. He won it actually in spite of um, some transmission issues. Um, in the final couple of laps, he said he was having issues whenever he was changing down and up through second gear. And a lot of the track of Valencia is in second gear. But he actually managed to extend his lead in the closing laps despite that issue. Um, and this comes off the back of... Uh, uh, a rotten, rotten weekend at the uh, Terrawell Grand Prix when he basically, he lost his head really, uh, crashed out and uh, at that point it looked as though he crashed out of the championship. Came back here, managed to put it right and I think it's um, it's a real sign that Bezeki has the maturity to, uh, and and the kind of the, the spirit to, to pick himself up from really tough, difficult moments and come back fighting. And it might be enough to secure him a seat in MotoGP next year. And Stevie, what about yourself? Uh, for me, I won't go with the easy option now that Dave's left the open goal to Juan Mir because chances are we're all going to be looking to pick Juan Mir next week instead <laughs> on the show. But uh, for me, I'm going to use my big winner for uh, Garrett Gerloff just because he came into this weekend, he had nothing to lose and goes in and does a really good job. He's put himself on the map for an awful lot of people. He's made sure that a lot of people are aware of him. He's shown that you can make the step from Moto America to World Superbikes and now get yourself onto a MotoGP bike and do a good job. I think there's a valid comparison to be made with some of the other riders we've seen make that step. But MotoGP is more competitive than ever. He jumped into a wet session, was a second and a half off the pace. So for me, Gerloff was the big winner. Um, Neil, what about the big loser for this weekend who are you picking oh it's tough to say i mean arenas is tempting uh yamaha is tempting um but i think i'll specifically go for fabio quattararo just because it was um yeah, it was a wretched weekend from start to finish um i don't really think there was any point that was that positive for fabio um and he had told us throughout the the aragon doubleheaders that um that we, we needn't worry and he needn't worry because he'd never quite gone so well at Aragon, but Valencia was his track and he could pretty much count on arriving at Valencia and uh, putting a couple of good races together. And we just never really saw it. I mean, um, we might have seen something quite interesting from him had he not crashed on the first lap, but even if he had stayed on, I don't think he had anything for the top four guys to the top five. Um, and yeah, just uh, I don't think when... I don't think any of us leaving Jerez in, in July could quite envision Quadraro's season ending in such flatness, disappointment, as it has done. Dave, what about you? Who's your big loser from the European Grand Prix? My big loser from the European Grand Prix is William Favero, who is Yamaha's communications director and a charming, lovely man. Um, and he had to deal with uh, Yamaha's valves, Maverick Vinales taking a new engine, uh, the whole coronavirus situation. And I think on, I can't remember if it was Wednesday or Thursday, I think we got about three or four different uh, press releases from Yamaha and all of them were, ooh, bad news, lads. Uh, things are not looking great. So um, uh, I can't imagine it would have been a 
great deal of fun working in that department um, uh, this weekend. And uh, honestly, I really like William. He's, a, he's, he's, he's such a charming man. Definitely wouldn't wish it on him. Having, having crossed paths with William on Thursday, Dave, I can tell you that in spite of all of that, he hadn't lost his sense of uh, joviality or humour. I, I have to say, though, for, for me, one of the big winners from this weekend was Lynn Jarvis, because yet again, we got to see that no one is as good at spinning a real <laughs> shitstorm into something positive. If you listen to Jarvis over the course of this weekend, Yamaha did absolutely nothing wrong. Yamaha were wronged all the way through this weekend. And it's a it's a damn disgrace what happens to them. So for me, actually, I'm going to change it. My big winner wasn't Garrett Gerloff. My big winner was Lynn Jarvis because over the course of the last week, Neil, you mentioned it earlier on, we had a big election over in the US. Everyone was watching all this spin that was going on about how you could be positive about this, that and the other. Jarvis would have been the best of all of them. If I'm, <laughs> if I'm, if I'm any political party, I'm hiring Lynn Jarvis for, ne for the next election. But what... What about your loser, though, Steve? You, uh, I mean, you can't have two winners. No, oh, I definitely can't. But uh, you know what? I can have two winners because I'm going to pick a, a, a. For me, it was it was a double loser this week. It was that's how disappointed I was with what we saw from Arenas, and he was my big loser from the weekend because, and it's for all the reasons that I, I mentioned only a couple of minutes ago. It just. He he just didn't he didn't ride with the sort of maturity and intelligence that we've seen from him all the way through this season. He's still got a three point championship lead, so he goes into the final two rounds still with the championship very much in his hands. He was unfortunate with the accident, but he should have dealt with the consequences a lot better. Steve, you were talking about maturity. You realise you're talking about Moto three here, right? Yeah, but Arenas <laughs> is you know he's he's at least twenty at this stage, Dave. You know. <laughs> So certainly I expect to see more from him. Like, uh, let me just have a quick check. Yeah, Albert's 23. He's about to turn 24, Dave. Yeah, he, should, he shouldn't have done what he did. And he, he shouldn't, he, he'll know it as well. And it's one of those ones where now he really needs to come back next week and show everyone why he's been bossing Moto3 all the way through this season. And I hope he really does because he's been sensational for most of the season. He's been able to show great racecraft, get himself to the front on a regular basis. And yeah, I, I hope that that's the Albert Arenas that we see at Valencia too. So uh, hopefully that's what we get to see. Hopefully we get to just have it where it's all about what happens on track next week as well. And it's not about any of like what we saw this week with the Yamaha situation or the bad weather. Hopefully we just get a clear run all the way through and we get to see the championship decided with who's able to get the most out of their bikes on a full normal race weekend as well. And that's definitely what I'm looking forward to next week. Dave, what are you looking forward to for Valencia too? Yeah, it's, it's same. I'm really, uh, I honestly think it's going to be an interesting weekend because um, like you say, it's going to be, you know, decent weather all weekend. Everyone is going to have time to work on setup. Everyone has a race worth of data behind them. They know, they have a good idea which front tire they want to use. They can spend more time selecting the rear tire. Um, the people who had really bad races can actually have a go at trying to get a, you know, a, a better race. So, yeah, I think it's going to be, and I honestly think that the, the result could be quite different from what we saw. Uh, and we've got a title on the line, uh, uh, on the line. We've, you know, the, I think that the MotoGP title is going to be decided this weekend. Uh, and it's, could get quite, um, you know, it could get quite close, quite tense with where riders are finishing and, uh, you know, how they're performing. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, 
I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, we should have MotoGP signed, sealed and delivered by the end of this weekend. It'd be a bit of a surprise if we ended up Moto2 and Moto3 being confirmed as well. But Neil, other than the train out of Valencia on uh, Monday next week, what are you looking forward to from the European Grand Prix? From, sorry, the Valencia Grand Prix? Uh, the Monday afterwards and logging on to Twitter and seeing all the It's Race Week tweets uh, <laughs> and thinking, no, no. Um, I'm looking forward to, yeah, but I think what David said is is absolutely true. I think there's going to be a couple of um, interesting stories and, and maybe even surprises. Um, I'm interested to see the likes of, of Brad Binder, uh, what he can do at, uh, at Valencia too, to Kakinakigami, whether he can make a step forward and possibly get his first MotoGP podium. I would not rule that out. Um, Mir dealing with the pressure again because it was it was fun seeing how cool he was throughout last weekend and, and seeing whether he can maintain that um, with expectations and attention on him pretty much from start to finish and uh, yeah Moto2 and Moto3 I mean uh, you really don't know which way that's going to go Moto2 is on an absolute knife edge I can't wait to see I mean, it's normally in these situations where you see just how good some of these young promising talents are. And we're going to see just how good Ineb Asinini, Sam Lowe's maybe isn't so young compared to the, the rivals he's riding against, but how good he is handling with the pressure bouncing back from last week's disappointment and how good Luca Marini and Marco Bezzecchi are. So I think that's uh, that's something we're going to have to uh, anticipate with uh, with wide eyes. Yeah, I think that uh, sums it up nicely, Neil. I'm very excited to see what happens, especially in that Moto2 class next week. I think it should be something special. Uh, I want to say a big thank you as well, just before we sign off on this week's Paddock Pass podcast. Big thank you to everyone that signed up to our Patreon after last week's Patreon-only show where we sat down to interview Jonathan Ray. Uh, we had a lot of people that did end up supporting the podcast as a result. So a big thank you to everyone that subscribed and uh, became a supporter of the podcast. If you're interested in doing that, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast. And for as little as $3 a month, you can make a big difference to uh, making sure the podcast is able to run smoothly, making sure that we're able to keep the likes of our sound engineer, Brian, in a little bit of uh, food and water during the course of the race week as well. And uh, as well as that, it definitely makes a big difference for just helping us to grow the podcast as well. So big thank you to everyone that uh, did become a patron supporter for us. If you've got any questions, you can make sure that you Tweet us at Paddock Pass Pod, or you can tweet us directly at Steve English GP, at Moto Matters, or at Neil Morrison 87. So, for myself, Steve English, from David Emmett, from Neil Morrison, a big thank you to everyone to, for listening to this week's show. And until next week's Valencia show, we'll all sign off from here. Smooth as. Twenty twenty, a year that would be. I've already fucked up, lads. I've already fucked up. I managed to get two words into <laughs> one second into the podcast. One second into the podcast. <laughs>